I'm Susan Branscombe, and this is Leading She. It was just interesting. It was kind of an out-of-body experience because people were just commenting on, was I qualified? And I mean, all these things on LinkedIn, on the woman reporter's site primarily. I had all these people that didn't even know me sort of assessing, you know, why was I chosen? Was I a token woman? As a top executive with a 40-year career, Diane Moorfield worked primarily in the spotlight of high-visibility public companies, which she believes suits her extroverted personality. Most recently, she worked with Cyrus One, a large public company. She's a driven performer and a born leader with a knack for building strong relationships and strong teams. Diane says an excellent and pivotal career move was when she took a stretch assignment for which she did not feel perfectly prepared or qualified. In accepting this new position, she used vulnerability, which paid off for her in gaining team support. Enjoy listening to this delightful podcast with Diane Moorfield. Today I have with me as a guest on Leading She, Diane Moorfield. She is a freshly retired executive, uh, having had a long career with primarily publicly traded companies as an executive and CFO. Uh, she is a public company board of director uh, on a couple of boards. Uh, she hails from Chicago and now is newly retired and living in Naples. So thanks for joining me, Diane. I'm thrilled to be here, Susan. I appreciate you yeah. inviting me onto your podcast. Sure. Now I'm glad to have you here. It's great. Let me, I'm going to take a little time here and go through your career and then uh, ask you to have uh, chime in with any highlights or anything I might have missed. Diane Moorfield has had a 35-year career and just retired last month, December 2020, from Cyrus One, where she was an executive VP and chief financial officer for almost five years. Cyrus One is a publicly traded global data center REIT with revenue of over $1 billion and total enterprise value in excess of $12 billion. Since joining the company in 2016, she raised in excess of $13 billion in capital in numerous capital market transactions. She's had a long career of working for public companies, having served as Executive VP and Chief Financial Officer of Strategic Hotels and Resorts, a publicly traded hotel REIT that was sold to Blackstone Group for over $6.5 billion in 2015. And she was with Equity Office. Many people in my industry, commercial real estate, uh, know Equity Office as a a large owner of um, office properties. And it was the largest largest publicly traded REIT at that time. And Equity International, a private equity company controlled by Sam Zell, well-known, very wealthy, successful businessman and very well-known in the real estate circles. She was CFO of Equity International, and her roles at Equity Office included Senior VP of Operation with Profit and Loss Responsibility for the Midwest region with over $450 million in revenue, and she managed a division between uh, 350 and 400 people in this uh, Midwest region for the company. She began her career at Barclays Bank as a commercial real estate banker and was in public accounting with Deloitte. She serves on the board of public companies, Copart and UDR, and served six years on the board of Spirit Realty. She's received many awards, including World's 50 Most Powerful Women in the Data Economy and CFO of the Year Award with Finvest 2020 Global Awards. So um, long career, very successful, and uh, very impressive. Thanks. uh, Yeah. Any comments, any any thoughts as you look back over your career? Yeah, well, one, I, I think I was uh, certainly very blessed in all the di- various opportunities I had in my career that you outlined. And, you know, sometimes it's being right place, right time, certainly having a strong network that provided me opportunities throughout my career. But again, I just, uh, I feel very lucky as I've just retired to had some great experiences and more importantly, I worked with great teams and great people for the last, it's actually been 40 years. I graduated undergrad in 1980, so pretty much to the day, 40 years of working. I was thinking it would be closer to 40 because that's you and I are of the same veteran 
vintage, <laughs> as we say. And yeah. so 80 was about the time I graduated from college, too. So, yeah, 40 years. Uh, I'm 41 years this month. So uh, same uh, same kind of thing. And so, yeah, very impressive career. You've built, I'm sure, a lot of great contacts over the years and people that uh, I get the feeling that people like you that you've worked with. I mean, not everybody likes this, right? We can't, you know, but I think you're very, um, you've been able to, and we're going to talk about this, develop relationships with people that are meaningful and help you succeed in your career. Um, you grew up in Chicago. Your father was, as you say, uh, an old school Italian, yet uh, pretty progressive when it came to women. Uh, you are the youngest of four children uh, with two older brothers and an older sister. So tell me a little bit more about where you grew up and what your family was like and yeah. siblings and so forth. Yeah, and here is another area I'm completely blessed in, and that was my my growing up in my family. Um, my father was Italian. My mother was Irish. And, um, and I had three older siblings, and we had a very functional family. So that in and of itself is an amazing blessing and i'm still my parents are deceased but to this day incredibly close to my siblings and then all of their kids there's you know 14 next generation so i do think a strong family base you know and, and we mentioned ethnicity in my case it's italian irish but look we all come from some type of ethnic background and that that plays into who we are i think as people and i think pride in our ethnicity whatever it is and in our original family and what that meant to us, both how we personally developed as well as professionally is a, a really cool thing. And I think it's something, you know, that I and my husband have tried to pass down to our own three kids as well. Sure. Yeah, there's a real focus in today and, you know, um, ethnicity, race and uh, being proud of where we came from and not feeling different and and it being a negative thing. Um, we are a country of immigrants and, you know, there's a focus on accepting people for who they are and where they come from and um, equality, diversity, all of that. So good, good for you. Absolutely. And both my sets of grandparents were from respectively Italy and Ireland. So my parents were first generation growing up in Chicago and that was, that created a lot of who they were. Mm -hmm. Sure. Sure. And back then, I would think that uh, they might have faced, you know, bias uh, and so forth. But I mean, Chicago has so many neighborhoods that are typically this this uh, this group of people coming from this part of the country. I think it's always interesting to see Chicago in that way. Yes, for sure. So what values? I, I was curious about, you know, you grew up in Chicago. You had this um, family. You were the youngest and if I, I think if I, sir, uh, if I checked the women that are in this podcast about firstborn birth order, that kind of thing, there, there weren't as many youngest uh, as there are the oldest, and I'm an oldest, uh, but you are driven. You are ambitious and driven and motivated. How do you think your birth order might have played into that or your upbringing, your values might have played into how driven you are? It is funny. I think when people really get to know me but don't know my birth order, they're pretty surprised when I say I'm the youngest. I think people assume I'm the oldest just because I am driven. I'm very um, goal-oriented and all of that. But, but all three of my older siblings have been very successful in their own right. So I think part of it was seeing my older siblings. Neither of my parents went to college, not a day's college education, but all four of us went to college and have advanced degrees actually. So I think that was part of it. I also grew up in the West suburbs of Chicago and it was a, it was a suburb where really everybody almost from my high school went to college. So it was a given. So mm -hmm. I think that plays back to where, you know, where you come from. If, if that is the path, you just accept that's the path. I would say when I was growing up, I'm not sure I was that career driven. I was certainly driven to go to college, but it was more when I got into my career and saw different career paths that I became more focused on what I wanted to be and do with my career. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I understand. I mean, when we first get out of college and get a job, we're kind of like, okay, I just want a job where somebody pays me and I get to do things I think I want to do, but we find out 
I think is we have more experience where we want to go, right? Correct. Yeah. And I think that evolves. And so for younger women listening to this, your career path will evolve, but you have to own it and manage it. We're all free agents. And I think sometimes I went from accounting to finance. So I started in accounting and I, the reason to your point, Susan, I picked accounting as my major and, and to get my first job is because I knew I'd get a job coming out of a co- college with an accounting degree and I had student loans. And so my goal was get a job the day I walk out and be able to start paying my student loans. So it wasn't right. that I had this huge passion for accounting. I liked it. But then as I noticed other types of careers in business, I migrated to finance and then got my MBA to be able to go more down that path. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I would say to young women, stay open, go get out there, start doing something. You, you might have to do some of what you don't like to do until you figure out what you really do like to do. And then and then just embrace that. You know, that's that's what I would say. And we have very, very long careers. Forty years is a long time. Things change. You might do something for a year or two uh, that you don't really necessarily like and aren't uh, in perfect alignment with your gifts and skills, but but if you keep pushing things in the right direction, you will you will get to where you want to be. That's so true. And sometimes mm-hmm. opportunities fall in your lap. I I was never you know on a path quote to have a real estate career again. And now there are real estate majors at some universities, but that was never on my radar. But when I moved from public accounting to banking. I ended up in the commercial real estate group at Barclays Bank. And then I mm-hmm. created, I just found that I had a passion for real estate. It was mm-hmm. so tangible. It has huge personalities. Yes. Many of which I worked with or for. And and that created my passion for real estate. But again, I didn't say I'm gonna, you know, be in real estate. And I right. that's to your point, Susan, where if you're earlier on in your career, keep looking what's out there, whether it's industry or type of position and be open to it. And when you find something you really like and you have a passion for, that's what you should go for because people always perform better in either companies, industries, or careers that they're passionate about. Yes, indeed. I would agree with that. Many of the women... I host as guests on the podcast, work with private companies. You've chosen throughout your career to really work with public companies and working for public companies, you're really in the spotlight, the company's in the spotlight, and you're right at the center of that as CFO. There's a lot of scrutiny uh, of public companies. So, and, and you've been su- very successful to be able to raise capital to the extent you did with uh, Cyrus One and help them achieve an investment-grade rating uh, improvement, a better investment-grade rating. That is hard to do. I know how hard that is. So a lot of accomplishments. What would you say to the listeners about the pressures of being in a public company as a CFO versus a private company? How is it different? Yeah, and I really understand the differences because, again, in the first probably 15 years of my career between public accounting and banking, I was exposed to both public and private. So as a real estate banker, most of my clients probably were private, but I also you know, lent to some of the big public companies. And then I was on the private equity side for a while. I really migrated into the public company world in 1997. So I was of a 40-year career. I was on the pretty much front lines of public companies for 23 years, but exposed a lot to private companies. This gets back to what suits your personality and your gifts and skills. I'm a I am a raging extrovert, basically. Whenever I do the Myers-Briggs test on that. E, I'm about as far E as you can get. And so I love the public company world, being out in front of people, um, you know, dealing with that whole side. There are people that don't want to spend a minute in a public company. They like the private world, which has a ton of advantages as well. So I think you migrate to where your gifts and skills are. And for me, it was, again, the kinds of skills I think I have, I brought to more the public company CFO role. 
in addition, and I think relationships are important, no matter whether you're in public or private, they're equally important. But I am very relationship-oriented. I say this all the time, particularly to my kids or younger people. When I got out of college, and even when I was in college and in high school, I have friends going back to grade school that I keep up with. I called it relationships. Like, I just love people, and I love building authentic relationships and and having them long-term. You know, that became networking. So now it's more called networking, which I think is less, I don't know, doesn't have the same how I view relationships. It seems more, you know, contrived, I guess. But Mm -hmm. building relationships in any career, and even if you're not extroverted and more introverted, you can still develop relationships. But the key is to be authentic, to keep up with people and not just reach out when you need something but to always just keep those relationships going, which is hard mm-hmm. and busy. Yeah, it is. And I, I see that as one of your strengths and I think one of mine. Um, and it can be hugely beneficial to a career. And that is, we really like people. Uh, and I think, uh, for the most part, people like us. And so I'm very intrigued by people. That's one of the things I love about this podcast is that I love getting to know people and what makes them tick. And so, um, and people have said, well, you've got a good rapport with these people. It's because I'm interested in in all the women I, I talk to. Mm-hmm. But building those relationships is is really important. And these people become friends over time, right? And uh, just really getting to know their kids, you know, and what what makes them tick, you know. And sometimes they'll talk to you off the record. My clients will say, you know, this is bothering me or that's bothering me between you and I. You know, they trust me. So, and it's been a big part of my success. And I think yours too, right? Yeah, it really has. I, I know how we even got introduced was through Karen Case, who did a podcast. For- yes, you know, president of the real estate group for CIBC, formerly private bank. Karen and I went to grad school together at night at University of Chicago in the 80s. So again, 35 years ago, and to this day, we have a great relationship and come full circle. You know, my daughter, Michelle, works in the real estate group at CIBC. So these relationships, if they're authentic and you keep up with them, and to your point, even like people and you're interested in them. And I always would ask all sorts of questions of, you know, people I get to know, even when I first get to know them. Now I think you have to be more cautious about that. I I think people can be sensitive about that, even though you just really are doing it as a a sincere interest in someone. Mm -hmm. But I am a little more cautious now because I just think there's way more sensitivity about everything these days. Um, so yeah. I would say I was way more open um, on what I talk about or what I'd ask people years ago than maybe I am today, which at mm-hmm. some level is kind of a shame, quite frankly. Yeah, yeah, we're going to get to that. I I do want to I do want to bring that up, but uh, some of the things that we talked about uh, with people, uh, your nickname is Di, not Diane, right? A lot of people call you Di. (laughs) No. In fact, well, I first started, very rarely have people ever called me Diane. And again, some women might be offended to that. I found that to be a term of endearment. So Mm -hmm. Barclays Bank days, it was when, you know, Princess Diana was married to Charles, but, you know, Barclays Bank, British Bank, and one of the British guys in the office just started calling me Lady Di almost as soon as I joined the bank. And so everybody called me Lady Di or Di. Ironically, at my last job, Cyrus One, somebody there, one of my colleagues, immediately started calling me Lady Di from day one, and it's stuck there as well. So again, I am not overly sensitive about anything, to be honest. You know, yeah. If lines crossed, you know, and I don't know if we'll get into the whole Me Too generation, obviously, yes. about that. But things like if somebody just wants to call me Di versus Diane, again, I, I think that's, to your point, a sign that they like you, that they're comfortable mm-hmm. with you, and it's not so formal. Um, yeah, like- I agree. I, I think you have to look at the intention, uh, uh, and you can tell, you can sense it. Like, there are there are customers that are older than me that I work with that call me kiddo. 
I'm not offended because I can tell that they're not meaning to talk in a condescending way to me. There are people that call women kiddo that I think there's a motive there or something about you're different than us. You're different than me. I don't know. I think you can tell motive. Uh, don't you? Correct. Intention? And intent, you absolutely know it. So that is why I do think people need to not be quite as sensitive, maybe on something like what you just said, that somebody says, you know, that could be because they really like you and it's, you know, right. they're comfortable with you. Right, they are. And for me to say, look, don't call me kiddo. And, you know, or like, I'm offended when you call me kiddo, they would be taken aback by that, I think. <laughs> it would affect my relationship with them. So, you know, you can tell. I can tell. I can tell. You know? Yeah. yeah. There have been many changes in our workplace uh, of late where men and women deal differently than with each other than you and I are used to, say, from the 80s or 90s. Uh, we, we bring so many complex perspectives and approaches to the workplace uh, as we're oriented as a woman or a man and gender. We're socialized differently and we our expectations are different. So we're bringing that to the workplace. Uh, I've experienced this. I believe you have too, overt and unconscious bias, gender bias. Uh, you worked with uh, Sam Zell in real estate. Uh, Sam is very successful, as I mentioned, billionaire, uh, had one of the biggest REITs in the country equity office, and he had a reputation for using foul language and off-color stories and jokes. I mean, he's got that reputation. And you didn't you didn't necessarily speak out about this when you were around it, um, and but you weren't completely offended by it. Right. Talk about that. Yeah. So it, it it's so interesting because just on the surface, I couldn't be more different than Sam But I worked in his, you know, in his companies for 12 years and I have great respect for Sam. He is controversial on the surface, but what I will say about Sam, and there were some lines he probably crossed verbally. And yes, he does like foul language and, you know, and dirty jokes, which I don't. But he's a brilliant businessman. He's an ethical businessman. And if you see who he promoted, he's truly a meritocracy. So his number two for decades, and she's probably my biggest female mentor, is Shelly Rosenberg. And Shelly was his number two, again, for decades on all his boards. And of Sam's three still publicly traded REITs, um, Marguerite Nader is the CEO of Equity Lifestyles, and she is the head of one of the most successful REITs in terms of shareholder value creation of any of his REITs. In fact, I think it's the top of his existing REITs. So he is very much pro-women, men, whoever you know, executes and is creating shareholder value for the company mm-hmm. chairman. So it's it's kind of sad because that's back to it's part of his personality, he's super old school with the how he talks and yeah. but his intent is not to actually, I don't think to demean women, it's quite the opposite. He's supported and promoted women into amazing positions. It's still not acceptable. Look, the Me Too movement was needed. Mm-hmm. It was sorely needed. Um, and so many women and probably us to some extent as well, you know, would remain silent about certain things. But I also think now the pendulum swung so far the other way that you know, men are so nervous about doing anything, inviting a woman to just go grab lunch or a drink, you know, right. nobody's doing any of that right now because they don't want it to be perceived wrong. So I hope it comes back to some type of happy medium at some point. Yeah, I, I think I am hopeful that it will. And, and you and I have talked about this. Um, I was in the client development business. And so my approach to, because we were working with mostly men, right, in the commercial real estate area, wherever we were, is to kind of be one of the guys, you know, and, uh, you know, they would smoke cigars, I would smoke cigars, we'd go out drinking, you know, we'd play golf. And I 
I felt that part of my relationship building with them involved me making them feel comfortable around me. Mm-hmm. And for that, I, I did things like that. I don't do them anymore, mm-hmm. you know, and, and this environment we're in doesn't really condone doing that. And, and it's not even politically correct or acceptable, you know, and I thought it was interesting, though, that you you kind of look at Sam Zell and the way you do and some of the stuff he said and you you're like, well, yeah, that's Sam. And, you know, I'm not offended. Uh, but your your kids, you said, called you call you a prude. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I thought well, that was interesting. Oh, well, yes, they do. They if they you said your know, name, three or four adjectives for your mother. Prude would be in that list for sure. And well, I, I don't think I mentioned this to you, Susan, but. Sam Zell's nickname for me was Mother Teresa. <laughs> Literally. That gives you an idea. Sam was very clear on where my view of, you know, how I handled yeah. myself. So, and it's interesting that women did it differently. And again, back to my father, his nickname was Stogie. So I grew up around, you know, an Italian father smoking cigars, but I never smoked a cigar. But I did feel like, I got along well with men. I could talk about sports because I, I sincerely like sports. My older brother mm-hmm. were in sports. Um, so there were things that I could relate to in men. I have two older brothers. I have two sons. I'm very comfortable around men. I may not have sworn or smoked a cigar, and, and we all have different styles, so I'm not judging anybody's style on that. But I think men were comfortable around me, and they knew I was comfortable around them, and they knew there were lines that I would not – except they cross in terms of certain terminology or whatever, and they respect mm-hmm. that and they didn't cross those lines. Right. Yeah. I think, I, I don't think uh, women really have to tolerate that these days. If they are offended, they should speak up. Right. But I think, I think you and I come from an era where there were a lot of Sam Zells out there in, in our industry. And I, I, I have done my research on Sam Zell and from what I understand he he was he's very inclusive of women. He said, "I'm not going to hire a, somebody because she's a woman. I'm not going to demote her because she's a woman." And so I think he's got a pretty open mind about you know women and accepting them for having talents and promoting them. It's, it that's clear. Uh, he's just the old school. Here's the way he does it. Here's the way he you know he's always done it, and uh, that's kind of the way that it's rough and tumble. You know, a lot of masculine energy out there at that time um and it but but the me too movement it's like i understand why it started and it was needed because there's a lot more frankly going on that i realized that the sexual the overt sexual harassment that really it's just just like so bad yes um and that's why i'm glad that happened and it was needed because Mm -hmm. it's and, and and to your point, real estate is such a male-dominated industry, and in the decades that we've worked through, it was almost all male. And I don't want to get too focused on any one single male, but that that generation of men, and some of them probably more openly discriminated, quite frankly, or subconsciously mm-hmm. discriminated, which is even probably a tougher that unconscious bias. But I mm-hmm. do think now it's so prevalent. The, and sincere, the need to have more gender and racial diversity throughout our companies, on boards, in the industry. And real estate's not alone in being male-dominated. There's many industries you can point to that are, yes, um, some less than others. But now it's really sincere that everybody wants more diversity of employees, of board members, and of thought and respect for that diversity. So that's all a, a very positive mm-hmm. movement and, and going to help the younger generation of women that we didn't really experience. Right. I, I mean, I think, I believe that women, you know, should speak up if they're offended in any way by language or whatever. I found that, you know, in, in my quest to develop relationships, make fe- people feel comfortable around me, I sort of tolerated it. And frankly, I would I would do it. I would tell jokes. I would say things. But but women don't have to do that in order to succeed. We we don't. I agree. You don't. Certainly anymore, if anything. If anything, now women would judge it more even than men. Yeah, I it just feels so different now and and wrong and things. But 
they don't have to do that to succeed. You come in and you speak up and you do your job and listen. And, um, you know, there are a lot of things in this podcast, messages that come up about how to succeed. Um, but we don't have to do that anymore, I don't believe. I agree. Or should we? Yeah. As recently as uh, I want to talk about this topic because I thought it was really interesting. Uh, as recently as 2009, the S&P uh, 500 companies, for the most part, had mail boards, uh, all mail boards. Uh, you and Stephen Fisher, uh, retired chief technology officer with eBay, mm-hmm. were both appointed to the board of Copart, which is an online vehicle auction company in July of 2019. Uh, Copart is one of the last REITs to have appointed a woman probably the last read, and you were the first woman on the board, and you knew that. You knew that. Uh, tell me what, what happened when that happened. What? Uh, yeah, that was... I heard you were trending. <laughs> that was kind of a surreal experience. So I had rolled off the Spirit Realty board, which was my first public board, and I was audit chair for Spirit Realty and joined that board as it went public, and I was on it, I think, almost seven years, six and a half years, and that was a great experience. And at that point, I was at Cyrus Swan CFO. We were really busy. We we're going international. And so I didn't stand for re-election of the Spirit Realty Board, took a pause being, doing board work and focused more on my Cyrus Swan CFO role. Then I got a call about this Copart board. And Copart's one of those huge public S&P 500 companies that no one's ever heard of unless you're somehow in the auto industry or insurance industry. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, I, you know, interviewed with the CEO and the executive chairman, who was the founder and the governance committee and all of that. And I thought it was a fabulous, fabulous opportunity. So I accepted the board position and they told me, yes, at the same time they were adding Steve Fisher, chief technology of eBay and Copart is the eBay of auto online auctions. So that made a mm-hmm. lot of sense. It's really a technology company in many ways. And so the press release goes out about Steve Fisher and I, very plain vanilla. I don't think there's a quote from uh, the CEO or the chair of uh, Copart. And I was in earnings week, board meeting and then earnings back to back um, for Cyrus One in the summer of 19. And I, you know, it goes out. I'm told the press release hit the wire. I'm like, great. Uh, No, no worries. I did know I was the first woman for that board. But little did I know, within 24 hours, it went viral because there was a woman reporter from Bloomberg who was tracking the S&P 500 companies that did not have a woman yet. And Copart was the very last one to add a woman. So my oldest son, Brian, is texting me. He's like, Mom, what's going on? You're trending on LinkedIn. I'm like, I don't even know what that means, but I'm busy <laughs> preparing for <laughs> So it did, it was, it was, it went on CNBC, it was in the Wall Street Journal. And it was amazing because I I didn't know they were the last S&P 500 company not to have a woman. I knew I was the first woman on that particular board. Right. I I wouldn't have been tracking that dead. I I had no idea, but it was just interesting. It was kind of an out-of-body experience because people were just commenting on, was I qualified? And I mean, all these things on LinkedIn, on the woman reporter's site primarily. And uh, I was just too busy at work. And that weekend, I remember finally posting something on my own LinkedIn because I had all these people that didn't even know me sort of assessing, you know, why was I chosen? Was I a token woman? And it was absurd. Nobody questioned Steve Fisher. No, Uh, no. It wasn't really from the auto industry, nor am I, but of course he had the right background and my real estate background, my finance background, being qualified financial expert for the audit committee, all those things was what Copart was looking for in me as well. But nobody, you know, questioned the guy that uh, got added. I was just debated publicly on platforms and I, that was pretty amazing to me. Yeah, I I had that follow-up kind of question for you, which is, and this happens with women, it's like, you know, you're qualified, you're very well qualified for this position, perfectly qualified, and, and I can see why they would put you on the board. And these people that get on social media and, and all of these forums and, and just start questioning that, like, what is, you know, she's she, she doesn't know about cars or what, whatever it is that 
that they don't think that you're qualified because you're somehow a token woman and they're just throwing a body at at the board. Yeah. Uh, and that happens. That happens to us, you know, out there that like, why is she president? Why why is she getting that when when there are plenty of men, you know? So I think that's interesting that that happens to, to women. And it doesn't happen to men that you you know, there's there's accused tokenism going on when they don't know what your background is. Right. When they're saying that. I think women are judged more harshly without question. Oh, no question about it. If a man gets promoted to CEO. Nobody thinks twice about it. If a woman gets promoted to CEO, they're like, well, can she really handle the role? Is she really qualified to be a CEO? Right. CFO. Right. So we are, I think we just have to get used to that. And I think hopefully over time that, mm -hmm. will, you know, be more mitigated, but we are judged more harshly without. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, you have said that one of your best decisions you ever made uh, was to take an opportunity with equity uh, office uh, to run a division of the company at the recommendation of Chip Owen, COO of Equity at the time, uh, previous uh, head of uh, the big real estate firm, JLL. Um, and he saw something in you that he wanted to put into this role, even though you didn't have the experience uh, with these uh, various disciplines you're going to manage. And your husband dissuaded you a bit, like, I'm not sure if you want to take this. Talk about that opportunity and why, you know, what happened and what, why you thought you wanted this. And thought it was a good decision. Yeah, that was definitely one of the pivotal decisions of my whole career. So I had been at Equity Office for almost seven years at that point, running investor relations, which is a job I loved. I mean, that that is a great career path, investor relations, and was very well suited again to my skill set and personality. And Chip Owen, the, the then COO of Equity Office, the position to run the whole Midwest region, we were called regional senior vice presidents. It was sort of um, divisional presidents in a way. Mm -hmm. um, and there were eight regions at equity office at that point. And the head of the Midwest region opened up and Chip approached me. And again, at that point, I'm, you know, the senior vice president of investor relations and public relations. And he's like, he, he called me Di as well. Di, I really think you could do this role, would you consider it? And all of the other regional senior vice presidents came up through property management or leasing or operations. And they're, you know, I didn't have any of that background. And I remember just saying to Chip, oh, it sounds like an awesome opportunity, but you, you know that I've never done leasing or property management. And his reaction was, wow, way to oversell yourself. So <laughs> that's back to the gender thing, right? Like, yes. I would just jump on it and say, absolutely. Like, I'm thinking about, okay, what don't I have that might, you know, cause me to not be successful in this role? I always say there's two things this example, this, this is an example of. One is women underestimate, you know, what we can do. Men tend to yes. be overconfident, even if they don't have the direct experience. We tend to feel like, oh, if we don't have it, we can't be successful. And two is, I was, you know, from a very young part of my career, women that had been successful said, take risks. That was one of their pieces of mm -hmm. advice. I'm like, okay, this might be my opportunity to take a risk. Mm -hmm. um, so, and even my husband, not, and he's been one of my, by far biggest supporters of my career, right. said, are you sure you want to take this? You don't really have the experience and you're not going to be good at failure. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I guess I don't have the experience. But anyway, Chip Owen said, look, this is a leadership and management role. And that is, right. that's your strengths. And you understand mm -hmm. real estate. You may not have done leasing or property management directly, but you're smart and you get the financial part and you get how to manage and lead and motivate people. And I'm so glad I took that role. And it was one of the most rewarding roles. And I created a great team that were the yep experts in their areas and yeah. had a great run. And then the company was sold to Blackstone. So yeah, <laughs> my next opportunity. Right. Something you couldn't control, but you came in and um, I thought it was interesting that um, we always hear about 
bringing in vulnerability as Brene Brown is so popular, you know, and you came in and you told your direct reports, look, you know, I don't know some of your areas. Uh, I'm going to count on you to teach me. And uh, so I thought it was really interesting. You didn't come in and command and control. I'm the boss now kind of thing. Um, You showed vulnerability and you asked them for their help. Yeah, well, I didn't do it just in direct reports. I did, did the region of 350 people. Okay. So the first meeting of the whole region where I stood in front of them, and back then, you know, you were physically in front of people. Um, there were other parts of the region that had to call in and were on video. But, I mean, generally, most of the people were in Chicago. And I looked at them. I said, look, I'm ex- extremely excited about this opportunity, about taking our region to a new level. As you know, I'm coming out of the corporate office, out of investor relations, public relations. And I said, and I'm pretty sure that about at least 90% or more of you are sitting here looking at me and saying, why did she get this job? What does she know about property management, leasing, engineering? And I said, I, if I were sitting in your seat, would ask the same question. So Mm -hmm. I think people were so stunned by the honesty of that. And it is how I felt. And I knew it's how they felt that I think I started to win them over and get buy-in very early. And I said, all of you are even more important to me because you have the expertise in your respective Mm -hmm. areas. And all the direct reports who lead your functional areas are incredibly important because they're going to make your functional areas successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's no, a great story, and you were very successful in there. And uh, I think it would, uh, if I'm working in that group and I'm hearing you say that, I'm like, wow, I'm, I'm behind her. Whatever she needs, I'm going to help her be successful. And it sounds like the first within the first year, you had seven direct reports for various reasons. At the end of the year, three were gone, whether it wasn't they weren't suitable for that position, and you saw it, or somebody took another position, but. You kind of came in and did the whole, uh, you said Patrick Lencioni's uh, book, Five Dysfunctions of a Team, which I use that book a lot in my company every year to kind of, you know, look at uh, look at trust and accountability and, and being open. And, and uh, so you use that. Talk about that. Yeah. If, if you come into a dysfunctional team situation, you're not always going to be, um, then it, I do recommend that exercise. Because you have to, you have to vet out where the dysfunction is coming from, whether it's certain individuals or certain relationships. Because if you don't have a functional team, you're not going to be. The financial results aren't going to follow. If you have the right people in the right seats and they work well together as a team, the financial results and execution follow. So you're right. Within the first year, about half the team turned over, and that was a positive. And for my last, I think I was in that role three years total, the last two years, we really, our region went from one of the bottom performing to one of the top performing. Fantastic. And Congratulations. We had fun. We liked it. Yeah. And we worked well together. I did the same thing at Cyrus One these past, you know, four plus years. When I got there, there were some really strong people. I have six direct reports there and there were two or three super strong people in their respective roles. And then I had to give time to the other people. I wasn't sure they were right. And I traded out those three. Again, some of it was natural attrition. Some was forced. And by for my last two or three years at Cyrus One, it usually takes about a year to get the right team in place. And then you start humming. And so the same thing happened at Cyrus One. And we built a tremendous you know, finance accounting function with the right leaders that all worked well together with each other, with me. And that is a big piece of advice I would give if you're a manager or a leader. Make sure you have the right people in the right seats. And sometimes you have to make hard decisions. And somebody might even be a really good person and you like them. But if they're just not cutting it and not executing or sometimes even somebody can be a cancer to the rest of the team if they just don't. They could be great at execution, but nobody likes working with them. Right, right. To succeed as a leader and manager, you have to build the right team. Build the right team. And there are hard decisions. And if it's something that, you know, something that I regret probably the most that maybe I hung on to people too long that I really wanted to succeed. Well, if he just had the right tools, if he just had the right 
this or that. Maybe he'd be okay. You know, people, either people are motivated or they're not. You cannot motivate them. That's a kind of a fallacy. They're either motivated to get this thing done and, and do the job and be right for this job or they're not. And you have to go in and and do the right, de- you know, things and make decisions for the betterment of the team and the company and, and the goals that you have, right? And I do think that's tougher for women because we are, we, we worry more about, you know, people's feelings and the, I don't want to say the emotional side of things, but just the people side of things. I think men often look at if somebody's not cutting, it's more like it's a business, right? It's yeah. like a training business. Thing. Yeah. And we worry about that too much. And for the rest of the people and the success of the company, you have to worry, you got to sort of take the emotion and people part out of it. Not that you don't treat them respectfully on the way out and all that, but it's, um, you've got to make those tough decisions. And I do think that's where it's a bit harder for women than men. Yeah, agreed. Uh, The last question I'll uh, ask you is, you know, despite having this demanding career in the public eye with public companies for the a lot large part of your career you and your husband mike raised three children all now successful adults and uh, michelle your daughter works as a commercial real estate lender at a bank like you and i did with karen case who was a guest on this uh, program with cibc um your husband mike had a demanding career i know he's retired now he was a cfo and we don't always ask uh, men this question, right? But uh, what were the keys to you two raising these successful adults and having demanding careers? What would you tell young women today? Yeah, well, yes, we do have three kids, boy, girl, boy, 28, 25, and 22. And Mike was a CFO for over 20 years. He, his first CFO job was in his early 30s. And he was always more in private companies or private equity-backed companies, manufacturing. So we were in different industries, which I think was good because we never really competing with each other in our careers, even though, you know, we were both ultimately CFOs. Um, I think one, it's a partnership. And there were times his career took more of a front seat to mine. And then it would switch depending who had the opportunities or the more demanding job. We had great childcare. We had in-home childcare. We couldn't have done it without that. Um, And it wasn't family. We just didn't have parents or family members that could raise our kids, but we did have good childcare in the home. Mm-hmm. And I think you have to be realistic. You know, people always say work-life balance. I call it work-life management. It's not balance. There's no way it's balanced. Like no. things you can't do for your kids. You can't be typically the school mom or whatever, or there are times there are things you want to maybe go for that next step in your career, but you're like, well, that's too demanding and I'll never see my young kids who are still, you know, at home more versus as they get older, they're all out and about all the time anyway with different mm-hmm. activities in school. So I think it's having a supportive, you know, spouse or significant other, you know, having an agreement on sort of how you're going to do it together as a partnership. That doesn't mean there wasn't stress and times we disagreed or yeah. that we upset that, you know, the other person didn't do enough. And then I think the kids, you know, I I think it's been an advantage to our kids. Our three kids saw a successful mother and father mm-hmm. in their careers and working, yet we were very involved in going to all their sports and whatnot. There were things we couldn't attend, but we certainly did as much as we could. And you know, and they've all, you know, now in their own right are starting, you know, successful careers. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I think it's been an advantage to them. And I think they would tell you that. Um, mm-hmm. But people have to make choices. And there was a period in my career when our kids were, you know, still preschool or right at, you know, in early school years that I was on a four-day work week and, quote, worked from home on Fridays. Now that's more common. But back then that was unheard of. Right. So that yeah. give me a little balance of being around more versus always being at the office. Now there's mm-hmm. way more flexibility for that even pre-COVID. Um, so I think that's an advantage for women that we didn't have as much of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it can be done. Um, it is sometimes we, my husband and I look back, he's retired now and we look back and we like, how do we, 
how did we do that? <laughs> how did we, because life is so easy and simple now. The kids are grown and they're successful, just like yours. And uh, how, how did we do that? We just did every day what was needed, you know, we needed to do. And the kids were fine and it was a good, loving, stable home. And so my kids are good and, and I, it sounds like your kids are doing very well. So it can be done. It can be done, but it is not easy. You just make choices, and it's, there isn't necessarily work-life balance. It's what I hear, work-life integration. Sometimes you're doing this. Sometimes you're doing that. Sometimes you make a choice of one over the other, and and it's just what you do. But, you know, you have to have a good partner like you do with your husband. I did the same thing. Yeah. Takes, a, as you well know, takes a lot of energy, takes a lot of focus and prioritization, but it's mm-hmm. such a full life. It's so full. It is. I personally yeah. could not have chosen one versus the other. I always, no. well, if I always wanted a family because I was raised in a big loving family and I always wanted a career and mm-hmm. tired of my degrees and my jobs to have a good career. So it's fulfilling when you can do it both. There are times to your point, you have to prioritize one thing over another. So I'm not sure you quote, have it all, all the time. But mm-hmm. as I look back at my 40 year career, I feel like I did have it all um, mm-hmm. not without a lot or too little sleep. And you know, I think more than anything, we have to personally sacrifice anything, you know, that, you know, we want to do or that is right. good for us. And that's why retirement is hopefully going to be a great thing. Yeah. Well, you've had a great career. Congratulations. Um, I know you were very successful, and I'm just uh, in awe of everything you've been able to do. And um, congratulations on your retirement. I know you've got a lot of things going on. You you continue with your board service, and uh, you're in Naples now. And so uh, congratulations on the retirement. And um, thanks for being a guest today on Leading She, Diane. Well, thank you, Susan. I just want to say that what you're doing here is phenomenal. And, you know, you're giving back to women, particularly younger women, that are still working through their career and decisions they have to make. So, and you're doing this just all as charitable work, like you're not getting yes. for it. I'm not getting paid. This is a hobby and uh, it takes more time than I thought. And uh, it's more expensive than I thought, but um, I love doing it. I love doing it. I feel like I'm a conduit between people like you, a woman who is successful, and the women who need to hear what you have to say. Well, thank you for doing it for the next generation of career women. And my hat's off to you. And you have had a phenomenal career and family yourself. So you're one of the best examples of anybody on these uh, podcasts. So thanks again. for Thank you. Yeah. High praise. Thanks, Diane. Have a great day. Thank you, Susan. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leading She. Please check out many other Leading She episodes, which are wonderful. We discuss challenges these accomplished women have overcome in their careers. Please subscribe to this podcast and rate it and review it. Follow Leading She on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And visit our website, leadingshe.com, where we have ideas and wisdom for women leaders.